So Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And now we're moving back to 2 Samuel, which we're working through. So 2 Samuel chapter 8, we're reading the whole chapter. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Method Amar from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He ham hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave victory where, David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Tebar and Barothai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When too, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with too. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. 
And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zerariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abithar, were priests. Zerariah was secretary. Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Thank you, Sue. That was uh, superbly read. Um, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, I have been over at uh, Gledswood Hills a bit more of late, um, back and forwards as uh, Gav's been on long service leave. But uh, I'm keen uh, for Gav's return. He's coming back tomorrow. Uh, so looking forward to that. I will actually be over there uh, again next week, but um, after that, things will settle down a bit more. It's great to, uh, to gather together to open God's Word. Uh, let's uh, pray again as we uh, come to reflect on this part of, that Sue's just read for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your Word, and we, we ask that you'd help us now. We ask that you'd give us understanding and insight, that we would uh, be shaped by what you say, uh, that that would shape our our. Uh, view of the world around us, of our lives as we live day by day. And we pray that we would live as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking uh, what uh, your outlook on life is. How optimistic are you about the future? How optimistic are you about the state of our world? What's your outlook on life? Now, depending on your uh, perspective, depending on your circumstances in life, depending maybe on the voices and influences that you listen to, you might be sort of more inclined one way or another. I mean, you might say, gee, after a rough couple of years, things are, things are looking up. You know, maybe you've, you've got a sense of hope and of positivity. Maybe there's things you're looking forward to and you're looking forward to engaging in life and getting on with things. Lots of good things on your horizon, perhaps. Or maybe you kind of see the last couple of years as just part of a bigger downward spiral. Concerns about global pressures and economic factors and government control and concerns about wars and resources and climate change. I probably should stop or I'm just going to depress you all. But you could mount a pretty good case for a pretty bleak outlook on life, on the state of the world and the future. So what's the answer? What's the way forward? What outlook on life ought we to have? Are we, just to, are we just kind of left to the whims of our circumstances and perspectives and, and the voices that we listen to? I think it is worth considering what voices we do listen to. Who is it? What is it that we're listening to and influenced by? And, and we are all inevitably influenced by the, the diet of information, the news feed the, the, that drips or perhaps pours into us. Uh, mainstream media, social media, news feeds, they're, they're actually designed to reinforce the same information and confirm us in whichever message it is that we've bought into. 
You might remember this, um, this uh, documentary on, uh, on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. Social media algorithms learn what information and articles get our attention and so feed us more of the same stuff, which ends up just confirming us in our thinking and almost inevitably polarises us against other ways of thinking because, at least from our perspective, everyone is saying the same thing. It is worth considering who and what voices we're listening to and how much we're influenced by them. And in that, if we're Christian people, if our trust is in God, then surely our outlook on life, on the future, on the state of the world ought to be shaped and influenced not only by our circumstances and perspectives and the various voices and the news feeds and things, but fundamentally it ought to be influenced and shaped by what God says. And in his word, in the Bible, in passages such as the one before us today, he gives us a true perspective on life, on the future, on the state of the world. Now you might think, well, at first glance, this passage in 2 Samuel 8 seems like just merely an ancient and irrelevant picture of life from so long ago. Something that's far removed from our situation here in 21st century Australian life. But actually, the picture that's given to us here should shape our outlook on life now and how we understand the state of the world around us. Because 2 Samuel 8 gives us a picture of God's kingdom, God's kingdom in Israel under King David, but that paints a picture for us of God's kingdom today under the reign of the great son of David, Jesus our King. So look with me at this passage as we continue our series through 2 Samuel. Let's allow God's word Let's allow that to shape our outlook on the life, on the future, and on the state of the world. Chapter 8 begins with the words, in the course of time. Now, this is a, a sequence marker or, or a section marker. Uh, but the events of chapter 8 don't necessarily follow chronologically from chapter 7. In fact, as we read through chapter 8, it includes events from throughout different times in David's life and reign. Uh, so, for example, the defeat of the Amalekites is mentioned in verse 12. Well, that took place before David became king. It's recorded in chapter 1. Uh, the defeat of the Ammonites is mentioned here, but, but that's actually recorded after this in chapter 10. So, chapter 8 doesn't necessarily follow chapter 7 chronologically, rather it follows thematically. Chapter 8 is the, is the outworking of the promises that were made in chapter 7. In particular, God promised David in, in 10 verse 7, you can turn back a page in your Bible or it's on the screen, 10 verse 7 says, God says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done and have done ever since the time I appointed elders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So this promise here of, uh, of a place for Israel and, and of rest from all of their enemies, God promised that in, in chapter 10, and here in chapter 8 it's fulfilled. As we see the Lord giving David victory over Israel's enemies in every direction. Now, it's, it's helpful to, uh, to know where all these strange places are with these funny names, which Sue did just a, a, a magnificent job of pronouncing. Um, and, and so I've got a, a map to show you on the screen. First of all, we see verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines. 
and subdued them. He took Method Amar from the control of the Philistines. The Philistines were Israel's long-standing enemy to the west of Israel. Which way is west? I, I can't sort of think. Uh, the west of Israel. So on, on the coast. Uh, that, that, that's uh, the Philistines. Then there's the Moabites in verse 2. They were, they were to the southeast. Then the uh, uh, Arameans to the north. Uh, so there's a few, a few groups there. Verse 3 talks about Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. Uh, Zobah was a city in Aram in the far north. And then in the nearer north was Damascus. Uh, further on in our passage, 12 to 14, speaks of Edom in the south and Ammon uh, in, the, uh, in the east. And so all we have here is David is victorious in every direction. This is the fulfilment of God's promise to give Israel a land, to, to plant them in a home of their own, to have rest from all their enemies surrounding them. And notice this is God's doing. In verse 6 and verse 14, it finishes with this refrain, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Literally, it's the Lord saved David wherever he went. The Lord delivered on the promise that, that he gave to his chosen king. He gave him victory over his enemies. Now, I expect we can, we can see that big picture clear enough, especially as you appreciate where those different places are. But perhaps we're a little bit stuck on some of the details. Like, what's with the killing of two-thirds of the Moabites? Verse 2, where it says, David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death and the third length was allowed to live. Perhaps we struggle with this, this mass execution. And you know, it's, it's right that we do. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that God has no pleasure in the death of anyone. You can see that in Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, verse 23. So it's right that we, that we do struggle with this. Furthermore, it's uh, worth remembering that just because something is recorded in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is approved by the Bible. David wasn't the perfect king, as we'll see in the coming days. We, we can't be confident that everything he did was right. But that said, our job as humble Bible readers is to learn from what the Scriptures say, not to make our own independent moral judgments of it. And we've got to say, in the context of this chapter, David's actions are presented very positively. So verse 15 says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. So I think rather than seeing this treatment of the Moabites as just some sort of cruelty, perhaps we should see it rather as God's justice being carried out against an enemy who had continually opposed and mocked God. And the fact that a third of them were spared should be seen actually as an act of mercy. Uh, we're not told why David was merciful, but the fact that he was merciful is hardly a, a grounds for accusing him of injustice. For God to spare anyone, anyone who has set themselves up against him, well, that is an act of his grace and mercy. And notice there too that the, those Moabites who were spared, the end of verse 2, they became subject to David and brought him tribute. It's a, uh, it, 
it's a, a reminder that, they, that, uh, that all will bow their knee before the king. In this case, they, they bow their knee before King David, even if not willingly, they do it unwillingly. And it's a reminder that in the end, all, every knee will bow before God's ultimate king. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then what about Hadadezer and his chariots and soldiers and these horses? Verse 3 says, Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. What we have here is a picture of total conquest. And notice the word there, defeated. Uh, it's actually, this word is actually repeated seven times throughout this passage. Literally, it's he struck down. David struck down Hadadezer, son of Rehob. Uh, you see it in verse 1, 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 13. I'm sure it's too small to, to read it. But you see, this is the repeated message that David struck down the enemies of God. This is the Lord's anointed who, in the words of Psalm 2, is breaking his enemies with a rod of iron and dashing them to pieces like pottery. But then what about the hamstringing of these horses? Now, you may not know, but hamstringing a horse makes it unusable for war. Uh, apparently this was uh, common in warfare in the ancient world. It was a way of weakening the, your enemy's military capability perhaps like destroying your enemy's weapons or ammunition. David's preventing his enemies from reforming an army. He captures the chariots, the charioteers, the foot soldiers, and disables the chariot horses, except for a hundred of them, which is curious. Why? It kind of begs the question, why the hundred that he spared? Now, at this point in Israel, they didn't use chariots, I wonder if this is, a, is this a hint that, that David is perhaps ex considering experimenting with chariots, but we're speculating. Maybe what it's doing is just raising a question without providing an answer, hinting that there, there's more to come. Well, this first section finishes, verse 5, with the subduing of another Aramean city, Damascus, with David striking down, same word again, 22,000 of them. He then establishes garrisons there such that they become subject to him. And verse 6 summarises, as I said, with that refrain, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This is God's king victorious over his enemies. There's no question about who's in control. Is, is the world going down the drain under the control of, of evil leaders? No. No. The kings of the earth, they, they might rise, rise up and shake their puny fists against the Lord and against his anointed, in the words of Psalm 2. But as Psalm 2 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. This picture of David's kingdom, this is one of where, where victory he has victory wherever he, he goes. But secondly, this kingdom, it involves the wealth of the nations being brought to Jerusalem. We're at point two on the outline if you're following along. Now, a nation's wealth uh, represents and expresses its power. 
Uh, even today, nations are measured by their wealth. Um, just as an aside, here's a, a list I found online. It's a little bit dated. It's from 2018. But you might notice there, Australia is in the top 10 countries in the world in terms of uh, both overall wealth, which is that slide, or the next slide in terms of per capita wealth. It's number five on both scales. Australia, USA and Canada are, are in the top 10 for both overall wealth and per capita wealth. And actually, Australia is wealthier per capita than both USA and Canada. Point being, we're very wealthy. Now, that's of no real relevance to the sermon, other than just to say that wealth is a measure of power and significance. And with the defeat of these enemies of God, their wealth, their power is surrendered. The Moabites, verse 2, says they became subject to David and brought him tribute. The Arameans, verse 6, became subject to him and brought him tribute. Verse 7, David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Verse 8, from Tebar and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. The glory and wealth of the nations is brought to God's king. Either through their defeat, in the case of the Philistines, the Moabites and the Arameans, or it's brought to them through their willing submission which is what we see with this guy too, king of Hamath. Now, Hamath is also in the north, up near, near Zobah. Verse 9 says, When too, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to king David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who'd been at war with too. Joram brought, brought with him articles of silver, of gold and of bronze. I think we've got to say too, is a smart political operator. He recognises David's supremacy and he acts quickly to align himself with David willingly. Sends his son to David to congratulate him, to, to present him with silver and gold and bronze. Again, this is a picture of Psalm 2 with the kings of the earth bowing their knee before God's king, either unwillingly or in the case of 2, they bow before him willingly. But notice what David does with all this wealth. He doesn't amass it for himself, for his own glory, as is the, often the case with kings and leaders. Verse 11 there, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. David recognises and knows that all glory and honour and wealth belongs to the Lord. The God who is God over all the earth. David knew this. And incidentally, all this gold and silver and bronze was eventually used in the construction of the temple. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 18. But David knew that this all belongs to the Lord. And as for ancient Israel, so too for us. All that we have, all that we, that all that we think belongs to us actually belongs to the Lord God. He's the maker of heaven and earth and, and all our wealth, our possessions, our skills, our energy. All of it is entrusted to us from God for us to use and for us to steward. But it all belongs to him ultimately because he is God. So this picture that 2 Samuel 8 paints for us of David's kingdom, it, to recap, it involves victory wherever he went. Secondly, it involves the wealth of the nations being brought to Jerusalem. But thirdly, it involves 
a great name for the king. This is point three. Verse 13 there says, And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Literally where it says became famous, it's he made a name. He became famous. God had promised, back in chapter 7 verse 9, God had promised, now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Here God fulfills that promise. Through the victory that God gave him, David, his name is made great. Now again, this picture of, of David's kingdom points us forward to Jesus. The one who threw his victory over death is exalted to the highest place and given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. This world has not been left to its own devices. It's not been left to the whims of godless rulers and authorities. Sometimes it might appear like it has, but Jesus is victorious over all. His name has been made great and he will one day return and set all things right. We can take great comfort from that fact, from that truth, that God's kingdom has a great king whose name has been made great. Fourthly and finally, what we see in this this picture of David's kingdom is justice and righteousness for all the people. Verse 15 gives us this uh, this glorious summary of David's reign. It says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. What a beautiful picture. Don't we long for a world like that where justice and righteousness is done, consistently upheld, consistently carried out? Now, David wasn't the perfect king. We'll, We'll see that in the coming weeks. But this picture of God's kingdom shows that it is characterised by justice, by righteousness for all God's people. And this is ours through Jesus, the ultimate son of David, the one who who rules with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness for all his people. Now, we don't yet see this fully expressed in this world, but that's what we long for and that's what we pray for. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, may you reign over this world doing what is just, what is right for all your people. It's what we long for, it's what we pray for, and it's what we seek to live out as his people. We seek to to live lives of justice and righteousness, expressed in our own lives, expressed in the lives of those around us and throughout the world. So God gives us here in in 2 Samuel 8 a picture of David's kingdom, the victory, the wealth, the name that the Lord had given him, the justice and righteousness that characterises the kingdom of God's appointed king. And this this helps us because it gives us a a shadow, it gives us a, a miniature, an illustration of the far greater reality of what God has done and is doing and will do through the ultimate son of David, our King and Saviour, Jesus. Jesus came some thousand years after David 
And through Jesus, God defeated far greater enemies than the Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Edomites, the Ammonites. Jesus defeated our greatest enemy of sin, of Satan, of death. Now, this may be a familiar truth, but I want us to hear this afresh and let it sink in. You might feel like you're up against all sorts of things in this fallen, broken, rebellious world. And we do struggle in all sorts of ways. But you know the greatest thing that threatens us? That's been defeated. Jesus is our victorious king. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of of the enemies of sin and death in this way. It says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death is our enemy. I mean, death stands over and confronts all of us. And the worst thing about death, the, the, the sting of death, is actually sin and the condemnation from God that it rightly provokes. That's the greatest thing that threatens sin for humanity. But the verse continues, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him who died for us to to take that sting of death, to, to bear the consequence of our sin for us and to bring us forgiveness and life, our enemy has been defeated. Similarly, Colossians 2 speaks of this this forgiveness, this freedom and victory in in these ways. It says, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The spiritual powers and authorities that would condemn us because of our sin, they have been disarmed. They have been triumphed over by the cross. Jesus has defeated our enemy, the devil. As thirdly and finally, Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We no longer need to live as slaves to the fear of death because the devil has been defeated. And so beyond death stands not accusation and condemnation for our sin but forgiveness eternal life in the kingdom of god where perfect justice perfect righteousness will be done our outlook on life on the future on the on the state of this world it it might be colored by all sorts of things by by joys by challenges but ultimately we can live resting in the knowledge that God has placed his king upon his heavenly throne. He is ruling over this world. He is victorious over our greatest enemies of sin, of Satan and death. All glory and power and wealth belong to him. His name is exalted above every name. And one day, every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he, Jesus, is Lord. Everyone will do that, whether willingly or unwillingly. I hope and pray that each of us will do so willingly.
and that we'll know the joy of living under his justice and righteousness now and forever as we live for his kingdom, even in the midst of this messed up and rebellious world. And as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord God, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you that you have established your king upon the throne. We thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus, who is victorious over all, to whom belongs all glory and wealth and power, whose name is above every name, who rules with justice and righteousness. Father, we long for that day when Jesus will return and set all things right. We pray for that day. We pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, until that day, help us to live in light of the reality of your coming kingdom. Help us to live now with Jesus as Lord and Saviour and to know the blessing of his kingdom. And we pray this in his name. Amen.